0: Greetings. I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 245, and today's guest is A. Mo, co-founder and CEO of Boomerang. We have such a great and inspirational story to share with you from this interview with Mo, who prefers to go by her last name, by the way. It goes something like this immigrant founder, attends MIT, starts to build a career in user experience, becomes the co-founder of a category-creating product where she is now the CEO, and the company proceeds to grow with very little capital raised. Oh, and it's generating about $10 million a year with only 11 employees. I don't know about you, but this is definitely the type of business that I find inspirational. It's proof that you don't need to raise gobs of venture capital funding to be successful. Boomerang makes productivity tools, and I'm assuming many people in our audience are familiar with their Gmail plugin that lets you schedule emails to send later, track emails, and other useful features. Well, another piece of their product which I'm really, really excited about is their scheduler. Ironically, after we recorded this episode, there was a massive debate on Twitter about the etiquette of sending out scheduling links like Calendly. Well, I think it comes down to a person's own preference, but I've definitely struggled with this approach as I feel like I'm asking someone to take on the burden of scheduling a meeting with me when I'm usually the one requesting it. I even took the step of surveying my LinkedIn connections before this podcast interview about scheduling links, and the majority of the people that responded said, hey, it's part of the norm now, and it is a time saver, so get over it. However, I still struggled with this process. Well, Boomerang has fixed my dilemma with their scheduling product, as it allows you to send available times in an email to review, and the recipient can just click on the time in the email, that works, and it's done meeting booked. It saved me a ton of time, and in return, it's not expecting the other party to click on a link, which takes them to a website to look at your calendar to book the time. This experience works much, much better for me, and I highly recommend checking it out. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like how having a design user experience background has helped Mo as an entrepreneur, her background growing up and her story of coming to America to attend MIT, plus her experience as a designer at tech companies, the background story of Boomerang from its early days to its incredible launch and the company's continued innovation and progress, lessons learned from transitioning into a CEO position, her experience as an angel investor with angels.vc, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, is your company hiring? If the answer is yes, then what are you doing to build up your company's employment brand? If you don't have a content strategy in place, then it is very likely that you are just flying under the radar. The good news is that we can help. A subscription to VentureFizz includes a content playbook for sharing all the details on your company, people, and its culture. We leverage all formats of storytelling to include video, podcasting, employee profiles, and more. Reach out to info at VentureFizz to get all the details. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Mo. Hi Mo, thanks so much for taking the time.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I'm excited to talk to you because uh, you know not only am I, I a follower of your company since the early days, because we're going to talk about the history of, of Baden or Boomerang that most people know it by, because uh, I've been a student of... Different accelerators, especially tech stars, and you were part of the early Boston class. I've been following the company since then. So I'm excited to hear the whole history, which is a phenomenal story, incredibly inspirational for other entrepreneurs to hear about. But before we get into that, I want to talk about your background. So when I looked at your background, you know, you come from more of a design user experience type of background. So I was just curious. Because most of the entrepreneurs I talk to, they come from all different paths, but I've never talked to someone with that design-oriented background. So how do you think that has helped shape you as an entrepreneur?
1: Yeah, I think it really helped for mostly around clear communication, right? Because as a UX designer, you're always trying to think from the user point of view, who you are talking to, what do they know, what do you need to say? So it really helped me get very much on point about knowing who your audience is, whether if it's a potential investor, a customer, you know, your team members, talking to business partnerships, you know how to present which information at the appropriate level of detail, right? That's what designers and UX designers are particularly trained for. So even small details like, in my email signature, right? My phone number is in a tappable format because I am thinking about, oh, the person might be on their phone and they need to talk to me last minute because they need to reschedule a meeting, right? So that level of detailed understanding of where the other person is really help as an entrepreneur because a lot of the time we are either convincing somebody of something, selling something, right? Talking about collaboration, all of that come down to communication and, I actually wrote a user guide on how to interface with me for my team.
0: <laughs> so what were the details on that?
1: Uh, things like, you know, what I find uh, really distracting or the type of communication that I expect from them, the type of communication that I do, uh, the level of distractibility I have. So I have we are a productivity companies so we think a lot about flow and how people work so i would put down as like i have this <clears throat> ability to really get like zone out of everything and focus on what i'm doing and i especially when we were in the um office right people would find me unapproachable cuz like they would might they might ping me or they might talk to me and i just don't hear it like i was so zoned into something that i was like i'm not being unapproachable i'm not ignoring you because i have this tendency to completely block out the whole world when i'm doing something and then i just come back out and you know when i come back out i'll respond to you and in case i forget you are you know you are okay to ping me again i will not find you annoying for pinging me twice and things like that right that's a the basically like if you are a software how would you interface with me and writing out that guide really help.
0: Well, I, I've seen some people publish that online. Like they've done. Oh, that, yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. I've seen similar things out <laughs> yeah. there in the wild. In mm-hmm. the wild. So, uh, and that that's a superpower to be able to do that, to be able to get that laser focused.
1: I guess so. I think it's kind of like I am very either completely distracted and, you know, always going from one thing to another or completely focused. I don't really have an mm-hmm. in-between.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I always find I'm highly distracted. And when I find that zone, like I found it this morning, actually, I found like a three hour zone where I got so much done. I felt good about myself, that productivity. Like I didn't just do the immediate shiny object things. I got a ton done that was moving things forward for what matters to venture fizz.
1: Exactly. Like the strategic thing that are not exactly urgent, those things can tend to get punted and, you need to find time for your deep work at some point of the day, right? It really depends on your natural rhythm. And for some people it's in the morning for me, it's probably like early afternoon or right before the end of the day, because I'm a night owl.
0: Got it. Okay. All right. Well, let's rewind the clock. So where did you grow up and what were you like as a child?
1: Uh, I grew up in Burma. Uh, so I grew up in a, basically on top of a factory, my parents' factory in Rangoon, Burma, uh, I was kind of like a little bookworm even as a little kid. I was always reading, uh going into a corner. But when I'm not reading and have friends and other kids around, we we're just there was no, you know, after school activities and structure learning, any of that. We were just roaming around the neighborhood, running around, climbing, climbing the roof, climbing the trees, and playing <laughs> all day. Uh we have My parents are kind of like a strange, like the exact opposite of tiger parents. So for like Asian parents, that was like kind of, I think I loved that freedom as a kid. Like we would just, you know, do self-directed, everybody's playing, there's a lot of creativity. And that type of freedom is kind of hard to find these days for kids
0: hmm. Yeah, no, it's so much different now. And it's, yeah. it's kind of sad, like the phones, the phones, the phones. Oh, yeah. yeah. Now the um, so you went on to study computer science at MIT. So
1: mm-hmm.
0: what led you down that path? And like, what, what was your, like your first computer?
1: Uh, my first computer was probably a 386 back in the early 90s in Burma. So I was lucky enough to have, you know, one of the early computers for Burma, right? And we didn't have internet. We we never really have connection to the outside world because we were under a dictatorship and they censor everything that comes in. But I was kind of like a little bit ahead for Burma time, right? In the nineties here, kids are on internet and they have emails and they have Google. We were basically, you know, like you have this little 386 that's not connected to anything. You can play some games and you can do some programming. And so mostly like tinkering around, but it was not like a serious interest. I was never really meant to be a computer science major. I meant to, so the story I ended up at MIT is completely like, a lot of random things that happened that connected. Uh, Burma was a country and a lockdown. We couldn't really go to college right after graduating from high school. You have to wait your turn because of a prior part of the uh, country's history where they were punishing the colleges for starting the revolution to get democracy. So we were just waiting around to go to college. I was supposed to go to medical school and I overheard a conversation on a bus, somebody talking about applying to colleges in the United States and how they have this um, need-based financial aid, even for international students. So I kind of went from not knowing, you know, any possibility about going and studying in U.S. to, and also like not knowing what MIT was to getting the acceptance letter in the mail in about three to four months, just from coincidental, overheard, followed, you know, asked them, hey, what's going on? How do you do this? And then one guy who was a doctor, he's a anti-government journalist, and he went to Harvard, for a Master of Public Health, he came back because he overheard a conversation from uh, Nepali students at Harvard talking about the need-based financial aid. And so he's like, you know, Burmese students need to know about this. So he started doing this small gathering in his backyard and people's houses. And like, you're not supposed to gather without government's permission in Burma, right? If you have more than five people that didn't have some approval permit, you're in trouble. But he started doing that mostly because he felt bad for all of our, you know, that generation just sitting around waiting for a chance to go to college. So I heard about it, uh, did, you know, everything was on paper, like you have to go to the US embassy to basically photocopy the addresses for the colleges to apply to. Because we didn't have email, we didn't have fax. um, and that's how I ended up at MIT, like from, you know, it was my first flight. Anyway, I never been on a plane before. <laughs> and that was my story. first flight out of the country, uh, got to MIT, right, actually it was like right before 9-11, that was our freshman year.
0: Okay. So what what was it like? So you land in Boston and you head over to Cambridge. I landed in
1: New York because I have family friends who will like pick me up, and then they put me on the Chinatown bus. I don't know if you remember, sure, New York to Chinatown bus, and then yeah, so you know, got to Boston with the Chinatown bus. MIT had a really great uh, international student association. They were like, instrumental in all of us feeling welcome and kind of knowing what to do. So, like, they even took us, like, snow boot shopping, right? That's the type of level of care that they had for us. Uh, otherwise, like, it's a bunch of us who never, like, seen snow, never been to U.S. Like, you know, I didn't really speak English as a, a speaking thing, right? I knew how to read and write and, you know, do math. So they were very... um welcoming, supportive, and kind of did a lot of the transitional part of, you know, adjustment to new culture, new language, new, for me, it was new education system too, because I was used to prescribe the government dictating and censoring everything you read and study to here is a catalog of things that you can choose. What do you want to learn? And i have like, I have the mm-hmm. choice, right? Wow, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> what a story. And then and, and that what well, I mean so you graduate a computer science degree but w- at what point did you start to get more interested or involved in the the design user experience work
1: Yeah so at MIT I was I picked computer science because I like the logical nature of it and I thought hey if I do CS I don't have to talk to people maybe that will be easy And then you know of course that's not how it turned out I joined Sapient. It's an IT consulting firm in based in Boston. They were a phenomenal organization. I was so lucky to have like that as my first job, right? Um, so I got to try out all different parts of the software lifecycle, you know, from talking to the users, people are trying to work on the UX part. And then, you know, they have like dedicated designers and Effort, you know, official professional designer there, but I was like, you know, new associate, just kind of help everybody out, writing code, right, doing testing, deployment, all of that. And I realized that I find myself more and more compelled to learn about the UI and UX and talking to the users and getting the the flow and design right. And I basically bagged my way into letting them, the professional designer do some of their jobs on nights and weekends and like hey you know I'll cut my like Salesforce integration in Java during the day that's what I was assigned to do mm-hmm. on the nights and weekends we, and we were all traveling all the time so like I just like begged them to be like hey can I get involved in this thing that thing and then I convinced you know luckily some hiring manager at a small Boston startup to take me on as a junior designer and luckily, they got bought by WebEx, then they got bought WebEx got bought by Cisco. So Sam, what company I'm was like, that? Oh. What
0: startup was that?
1: It's called web office. I don't know if you remember back in the early 2000. Uh, they were in Burlington. And yeah.
0: Rings a bell. Who's the founder?
1: <laughs> Rick Falk.
0: Rick Falk. Yes, 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 yes. Oh, yes, you know,
1: yes, Rick? Yes, yes. Yeah, he's um, I don't know
0: him personally, but I certainly remember yeah. the name. Yeah. Yeah. Too, too funny. Okay. So then that's kind of what steered you down the path of being more focused on the design side of things. And then you worked at a couple other Boston or Burlington, Cambridge startups. Like- yeah,
1: I think it's basically Rick's connection. So Rick brought me to Mazinga, which was kind of a debacle there, but uh, I was only there for like two or three months. And then 2009 crash. So I have this brilliant job of trying to find a new job in the middle of, you know, 2009, everything is crashing and I have a visa. So like, if I don't have a new job, I'm you supposed to pack up and leave in like seven days. So I found um, a different job at Choice Stream. It's also from like this web office, you know, Rick Fultz, their connection. So basically I didn't really have to like go out and apply for a job for the next two to three jobs there because of all the connection from that Boston, you know, tech startup connections. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, I remember those companies well. And, uh, but then you ended up at Carbonite, which was a very successful company that went public.
1: Mm -hmm. Carbonite I started. And then by then I was already helping out with Boomerang um, on nights and weekends. So like, you know, I go to my, even starting from like choice stream and then Carbonite Day, I go to my work, come home, you know, work with Alex on some of the front end stuff or like help him out with different things and then go to sleep, go back. So I was already doing that. And so I did not last very long in Carbonite and decided to do full-time with Boomerang.
0: Okay, so now, so how did you meet Alex Moore? Was that through MIT?
1: Yeah, we were same major, same class. We actually met mainly because I was always late to classes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, he noticed me walking in late for every class. And we were, you know, we happened to be in like two to three classes together. And we started dating in probably end of junior year. But we took like some classes together. So we knew we could work together very well, even in college. And then he went to join, I don't know if you know, Analog Devices.
0: Sure, yeah. Up Mm -hmm. in
1: Wilmington, yeah. And then I was, you know, at different software companies, and we would just work on, like, hobby site projects on our nights and weekends. So we build some, like, text breakdown project where it breakdowns your federal tax dollars and where it goes to
0: Oh, really? Okay. So you guys yeah. were always working on these side projects together.
1: Yeah, we were working on side projects mostly for fun and mostly because, yeah. like, oh, nobody's doing this. And like, you know, we knew that a uh, typical American doesn't know how much, you know, their federal government is spending on like defense versus foreign aid versus, you know, different things. So we we're like, oh, let's build this and see how it, you know, how it works. Um, and then... I was, not the, I was actually not the co-founder at the beginning. He had somebody from Analog Devices, then they parted way, and then Mike, our CTO, and the second co-founder joined before me because the whole thinking was, you know, you shouldn't put all your eggs in one basket, right? So we figured that one of us should be able to pay rent while the other one, you know, work on the lottery ticket. And so... I tried to basically resist not joining and have, you know, all our eggs in one basket for, and be like, tie all our financial future into one thing, but we kept working on nights and weekends and having fun. So at the end, we are like, okay, this makes sense. And let's do this. So I, w- I actually joined as a third co-founder at the end of
0: 2010, 2010. Okay. Okay. So. How did the idea for was it always Baden and then Boomerang was the idea?
1: So the name of the company is called Baden because it means foretelling the future with magic in Burmese. So we wanted to build software that feels like magic to the user who is using it. And it was always about productivity. So the first product that we were, the baiting the product was named after was like to actually figure out what you need in your files as you write an email. So it was a little bit ahead of its time for when we were talking about 20, 2009, 2010. Um, and you were supposed to like, kind of like crawl through company SharePoints and find out, you know, what files and people are related to the topic that you were writing the email about because what we found was like in big companies and we were in big companies at the time, people don't know what your coworkers are working on. And sometimes they will find themselves working on the third circuit of the same kind just because they are in different offices, right? So we were trying to like solve that problem, but we were you know, all engineers and didn't really know how to work with CIOs and go and be like, sell it to big companies. And so we were trying to get that off the ground, have the prototype. And as we keep showing it to people, they're like, you know, this is neat. And I, you know, if the company agreed to install it in our SharePoint and deploy it to everybody, I could see a lot of value in it. But you know what I really need (laughs) is, you know, I need the ability to get emails at a different time. And we were finding it in ourselves, like, you know, our jobs, too, that, hey, like nobody is innovating on these very basic features that they should have as part of the email client and there were people coming up with kind of little life hacks around it right make a different folder and you put it there and then you move it up and so we're like well, why don't we build the things that people are building their own manual hacks around and make it actually usable and automated so we started building that and showing it to people. And they're like, oh, my gosh, I need this. Can you give it to me? Even though like it was, you know, we had no website, nothing. And it started to spread among the friends. And friends, you know, they're like, okay, this is great. Let you know, And you know what you need? You also need to uh, let me schedule an email to send later. And so we basically built two buttons that go into Gmail with, you know, grease monkey script because we didn't really have APIs and, like, mm-hmm. None of the things that we have today as a Gmail as a platform was there. We hack our way into it, and that's how it came to be. And then I name it Boomerang because we're like, "Oh, it goes away and it comes back," which
0: brilliant, brand,
1: neat, (laughs) yeah, appropriate. But I think now that we're you know expanding way beyond just the email productivity features. But the brand is pretty solid and has a pretty good following. So we're like, okay, we're just gonna expand everything under this brand.
0: Yeah, it's a great brand where you have that credibility and you can expand it to other different areas. So like were you so the tech stars, like how did that help you get started? And then sending out those initial invite codes and then seeing this thing get downloaded and and then you started to build like the um Like like a a wait list too, right? Like there was a waiting list. Like that's something that companies do now, but that was ahead of its time too.
1: Yes, it was. Uh, We wanted to have kind of how to get viral on Twitter. And we didn't know, like we didn't have any marketing experience, right? It was three developers trying to launch something. And we are like, okay. And we also didn't know how well our servers will handle at the time. So we figured, okay, if we do an invite code and make it so that like, if you tweet, you know, you will actually get to the top of the list and get the beta early on. Ah. And at the first day, I was the one doing it manually, like looking at the Twitter (laughs) and and like giving people invite code with DM. And then like, once we saw like, this is not sustainable, we wrote a Python script to do it.
0: Got it, okay. Um,
1: yeah. So that was mostly like to, you know, not knowing how well our servers will function and wanting this like water spread. Cause we didn't know how to really launch a product. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. But when you have that product that actually is like easy, as far as the end user understanding the value and that word of mouth, it just spread like wildfire, right? Like you had like 25,000 downloads at the in couple of days when you're just launching this and just, you know, no promotion
1: <laughs> i think there was like a giant need in the market that nobody's doing right and it was so simple the value prop was so simple to get everybody has thought of okay i wish i could just punt this for a little bit and come back or i wish i could schedule an email to go out later and we want to you know kind of the life hacker crowd where they were always tinkering and trying to find this tool that they've been needing so i think Everything kind of lined up perfectly. We were the first, you know, in the market. People have been needing it. And there was also in the early days where people were not so paranoid about, you know, installing some random <laughs> developers tool in their inbox, right?
0: Good point. Yes. <laughs> Things were safe then. You could just download stuff and that right. we worry We were about looking
1: it. pretty sketchy at the time. And then like over time, when you look back, you're like, oh, you know, like, That was such a spectacular launch. And we didn't know, like, we didn't know what an expectation for a proper like software launch is supposed to be. So I think we got kind of like spoiled. (laughs) Um, We didn't know how unusual it was to have a blockbuster launch like that. Right. We have like probably 80,000 downloads in the first month. And that's the that's the numbers that people will love to have.
0: Yeah.
1: And we didn't know because we were first time founders have no concept of what's the proper way to do things there's a little bit of like not knowing makes you you know just kind of more brave and do crazy things and, and they work out
0: <laughs> or it reminds me of you know Dropbox like you were there at the same time as Drew House then too like did you know him at all or?
1: yes he was actually our class at MIT which means we will never be the most successful founders from our class <laughs>
0: <laughs> but same like experience of starting a product being more of an engineer and having that viral component coefficient or whatever that sparks just massive interest and in download yeah.
1: yeah the same thing with dropouts right they they had a great need of the product nobody is doing it and the product just so simple so easy to use boom everything just
0: follows. So at what point did you be like, okay, there's something here. And you started to monetize it.
1: Mm -hmm. So we started out, right. Everybody is free. They are using it. There is no limit to anything. And I was doing a lot of the user research on like, Hey, how are you using it? What's your job? Like, how do you use it in day to day? And. We started to get emails. So from the very beginning, day one of our company's founding, we always respond to every single customer email, right? So they email in and they ask about things and we, you know, fulfill different feature requests and answer questions. And a lot of them started to ask, hey, how can we give you money? Because I am getting a lot of value out of this. Can we donate to your project? And we huddle around like, whoa, people are going to give us money with, without, you know, <laughs> any prompting from us. And they're like, do you have a donate button? And I was like, hey, you know what, like, what we should do is you can give us money, but it's a voluntary subscription mm-hmm. so that we can charge later. And the other part is like, we just wanted to be, you know, consider as legit instead of some hobbyist that you donate to. We're like, right. oh, no, this is a business. So it's going to be a voluntary subscription. And we started getting people just paypal paypaling our account as a voluntary subscription. So like in the you know line of like, why did you pay this for? And we say, one year of Boomerang voluntary subscription. And that got us to really understanding about pricing, right? So because we primed it as, as subscription, people decided to pay us in the order of $12, $24, $60, and the higher end, we were getting people paying 120 And I was like, who does that, right? You don't need to pay. You're using a free product on the internet. So, I mean, they're, they're angels, right? And we're like, maybe that's where the price point is. Like, that's where we could potentially charge. And we also heard this. I don't exactly know where the wisdom came from. I think it's Paul Graham maybe saying like, you should price your product to be where they are grumbling and a little bit uncomfortable about it, but that's still pay. So we put our initial price point and then share with our investors, like, Hey, this is what we are doing. What do you think? And they're like, Mo, would you pay this price? And I was like, yes, that's why we put it this price. And they're like, that's not expensive enough. Because founders always end of value their own product. What would you, like, what would make you uncomfortable but still pay for this? And we're like, okay, like, maybe this, and are like, okay, set that. So that was our pricing model is the, the line finding and the the value that we have, right, like kind of like the, the unique Value for our company is we build horizontal everyday productivity tools. So we could use it ourselves. We are users. We have, you know, we don't have to go out and find empathy for our users because we already use it every day. So we know the value, we know how much we would pay. And the other funny part is in the early days, um, Amazon S3 sometimes goes down, and then we would get so many like customers just angry. Well, they weren't customer. Yes. They were free users, angry, desperate. So the whole, the product market fit like, well, how would you feel when your product, if this product goes away, we have so much validation about like, you can't have this down, you know, I, I, my (laughs) business depend on this, bring it back. And so (laughs) that make us super confident that we can charge it. People will pay and because it has become essential part of their, you know, work and business workflow.
0: So what's amazing about your business, and I think incredibly inspirational for other entrepreneurs, is you've built this business with an initial investment of four hundred thousand. So I assume that was shortly after TechStars. You raised some seed.
1: Yeah, Yeah, we move out to Silicon Valley and um, just raised that end of twenty ten or eleven. Like twenty ten, I believe. Yeah.
0: Okay. So this is a ten million dollar a year company in that general ballpark somewhere. So this is a you know with eleven employees. Right. So this was not a company that went off and raised, you know, 5 million, 20 million, 60 million, and then had 250, 500 employees, like very, um, you know, built on the foundation of revenue, <laughs> right. <Yes>. Subscribers, <laughs> which I think is, uh, you know, it's a very different way of building a business, but the most common way, like most businesses don't start, except unless you're in the tech industry with venture capital funding. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, we have this, you know, it's basically gave us a true North Star being customer value, right? What are we building? Who are we, whose problem are we solving? Because we know that if we do the right things by the customer, the company will continue to exist. We will be able to pay everybody. And the other part is we get super, super good at being efficient, how to deploy our resources and how to deploy our investments and thinking about how to grow in a sustainable fashion. Right.
0: As far as continuing to grow, because there's competition out there, right? There's other companies that maybe do something similar or, you know, have added it to their product suite. So how do you continue to fend off competition and how do you decide what to add next, like other new features and functionality?
1: I think it's, you know, It's two-part question and i think the way we continue to grow and retain our customers across of it like it became a category right we were the category creator when we came in there was nobody but now it's a category people are competing on price features all the other things and i think we continue to serve our customer by having fanatical focus on what they need what is the top you know top of their needs and future needs that they are going to have, and staying true to our vision of making sure that everyone have more time for what matters to them. And for us, the, the product roadmap, like people ask me a lot about like how do you build your you know, product roadmap and new features, and how do you know what to build next? It's usually an intersection of our own need. As I mentioned, we are our own users of our own products, so we know what is coming up in our lives and usage. And like now that we solve the you know this problem and that problem, what's the next one? Uh, we will see the customers repeatedly asking for the same thing, and you know getting louder and louder about it. And then the other part of the three prong is the technical innovation. So we always are looking out for what can we do with today's technology that we couldn't do before, right? So respondable is the example of it where we can do a real time natural language processing to understand what you're writing and give you recommendation on how to get it better. And also knowing like how to really evaluate the quality of the email that you're writing that couldn't have done it. We couldn't do this, you know, 10 years ago. We couldn't do it 15 years ago. Now technology is there, the server speed and everything else is there, right? Now we can do it. So that's the like the, the bringing the, the right at the apps, like, you know, at the end of the technology boundary, pushing it and making sure we bring the next generation. And then the meeting scheduling stuff right i think we use it to book this one we did because yeah because i was doing um some angel investments in you know early 2020 and late 2019 i was doing a lot of meetings and i am meeting other founders i am meeting you know other angel investors to learn from them and doing a lot of networking and i was like we don't have a tool that works right i I used, I try to use whatever's on the market and it was just not solving my needs. So we set out to like, let's solve this problem. And how do we build this?
0: Yeah, cause it was a different experience. Like the competitors generally send you to a URL to go book something and um, it was just all right there. And it was just simple, right? And uh, you know, cause I, I I had to train myself. I literally about two months ago sent out a uh, a message to link my linkedin community saying hey how does everyone feel about schedulers right like because i just feel like i'm asking someone to book time with me yet i'm putting the task on their shoulders to look at their calendar and match it up with mine i feel i feel like that's rude uh, and the feedback i got was like no it's just how things are done now get over it just you know use the product blah blah, blah. but your experience was different it wasn't Self-assuming, like go oh, to my URL and look at my schedule to see what works for you. It was like, oh, here's all the times I'm free. How about one of these? You know, it's very matching-oriented versus go do a task.
1: Yes, it feels very. Um, we wanted to start every relationship on an equal footing, right? If you send right. a scheduler that feels like I am pawning off this, you know, finding a time that works for you, there's a whether if is there or not, there's a little bit of perceptional lack of caring, right? And we wanted to make sure that the person who is receiving the the times feels like, oh, the sender really cares about meeting with me. They pick out these times for me, put it right there, where is it convenient for me? And the recipient can actually overlay their own calendar, you know, and find the time and one click, everything is in email. I think it's, Thinking about, that's what I mean by like staying true to our vision is our vision is to make sure that productivity doesn't come at the expense of our humanity, right? Because productivity always is about efficiency. People optimize, you know, how quick and how fast and how efficient it is for you, the sender, because a lot of productivity tool only cares about their users. For us, it's like productivity is not just about your users. It about the people in the whole ecosystem that is interacting with your users. Right. So the the care for the other side, like, you know, the person who is scheduling with you, who is using our product, it's not really paying us directly. Right. But we want to make their lives easier, too, and faster and smooth. And at the fundamental level, when you are meeting somebody for the first time, you really don't want to start with the weird power dynamic feeling of, oh, I made you schedule <laughs> all my thing, right? You want to be like, I care about you. I want to meet with you. Here are the times.
0: Yeah, that's that's incredibly right. I mean, it's very real. It was just the, my own personal feeling. I'm like, it's almost like a power trip. Like, oh, go book some time on my account. I just like, I'm like, I, that's just not how I'm wired. It's like, let me get your schedule and let me book time. That's convenient for you. Not what's my, so anyways, I think the way you've designed it is brilliant.
1: But like the one thing is like, we're not making it harder for the sender. Like for the sender is as right. easily used as equally easy. Like I I'm, you know, it looks like mm-hmm. I pick out those times for you, but I didn't, I just clicked two clicks and it generated.
0: Well, like a good designer. It was the user experience where it was like, wow. Yet yeah it generated on its own so it, yes. i mean yeah it was amazing so now you transitioned into the uh role as ceo uh last july i believe or sometime in the summer so so what have been your lessons learned of you know making that transition and what advice would you have to others on 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 that role
1: i think the thing that i learned is yeah the buck really stops with you because <laughs> before i was co-founder so i have you know impact and a lot of uh, input into the decisions and, but there was always the CEO who was the final decision maker, right? And so like, in a way I was like, oh, like I didn't know how good I had it. <laughs> now I'm like, okay, this is all your decision. This is like everything really ends with you. So that's something that I, you know, I think I should have known, but like, until you do it, you don't know and then what i'm learning like as you know my tenure to uh, the ceo position almost you know getting to a year is it's really easy to suck into the the urgent non strategic items day to day because now like you're even more you know torn into like when i was only like doing product as my thing right i only have to focus on the product and what we are building and how we are building it. Now, everything is, um, you know, calling for my attention and there is so many things that are happening and fighting fires of every single different nature every single day and they're different. And it's easy to get sucked into that like urgent but non-strategic items every single day. And I'm learning to set aside time for, hey, what is going to move the needle long-term planning, strategic things, right? That you really have to carve out your time for. And you know, the Eisenhower matrix. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of this thing where you have the urgent and non-urgent and, you know? Yes. Yeah. So I and learning that as the leader of the company, my job is to make sure that that corner of, Non-urgent but strategic items are move and making sure that you know they may not be all the things that I do personally, but making sure that people are on it and making progress on it. And then the other thing that I learned is I need to communicate a lot more often and a lot more um more details, like as I mentioned at the very beginning, where like you know, as a UX designer by training or like by, you know, experience, like I already know how to communicate, but sometimes you don't really like go into all the thinkings and all the signals that you have because you have the most visibility as a CEO from every directions and you forget that not everybody is seeing the same thing. So sometimes we would communicate, here's the plan, here's the strategy, but we don't go back the four layers years back how we get there and that's what i'm learning and that's what i'm trying to do a better job of
0: now you also talked about you started doing angel investing and you're a founding member of angels.bc so Mm -hmm. so talk talk about that group or what you've been doing as it relates to investing
1: yeah uh we so that group started out as just kind of like an informal dinners in san francisco with some people and i got connected to one of the founding partners um, through a company that I invested in. So I was doing some angel investing on my own anyway. And one of the companies that I invested is called Noya and they are doing carbon capture. So he was like, hey, like, do you want to meet, you know my other investor who is, you know super well connected in especially the clean tech startups. So I talked to her and she said, oh, we have this informal Slack group. And at the time it was just like a Slack group that people just go on and talk about. And then over the pandemic, we started to see what a need we have for getting other women angel investors a place to start out their investing journey. So there was a little bit more of the organization and, you know, trying to get it a little bit more formalized. So we now have a a website and, you know, member lists and, a a group to kind of like get new members onboarded into the thing. Um, Yeah, when we first started, it was just like a, you know, a group of people meeting for lunch and sometimes and, you know, talk on Slack. Um, Yeah, the goal is mostly to get, there is not enough women investors, especially, you know, and there, Silicon Valley, if you look at all these reports, there is, you know, not enough women on cap tables. And a lot of wealth creation is happen via equity, right? You can work for a startup, you can, you know, climb your ladder through big companies, but major wealth creation happens when people are on the cap table as a equity owner. So we want to increase that number. And I, we believe the best way to do that is getting more women to think about angel investing as a valid investment strategy.
0: Yeah, no, that that's a must. We need more women investing that are yeah. and then the other part to, is, you
1: know, women investors um they see women founders and they, yes, they do to invest more. Yeah.
0: Yep. And it all starts to build and build and build. So
1: yeah.
0: Um outside of work, what else do you like to do? Uh
1: outside of work, I read a lot. I, you know, as I mentioned, I've been a book one since I was like since I knew how to read. Um, so that's my like primary you know hobby i know it's so lame but that's that's the only like major thing that spent you know a lot of my time um i got an indoor um hydroponic gardening thing uh, it's called oh
0: that's cool all right
1: garden or g-a-r-d-y-n so i i'm not sure if you're supposed to Pronounces a garden or garden or whatever. And I'm growing some vegetables indoor. I know it's crazy because we live in you know California. I can right. definitely yeah. grow things outside, but we have deers that come into our yard and eat everything. Ah.
0: So
1: <laughs> I tried to start a garden last summer and it got eaten by the deer three times.
0: Okay. And I was like, okay,
1: I can't do this. Like, I can't keep fighting them. So I'm going to put it inside and see maybe I'll get to eat what I grow.
0: So what are three apps that you, what are three apps that you can't live without?
1: Uh, it's not exactly an app, but it's more like a service called Flow Club. It's a web service where you get together with, you know, basically strangers and get into flow together. So you go on and everybody set their intention for the hour or the time frame, And then you go on mute, video on. So you have some like company and you work together And then at the end of the hour, you talk about, you know, if you got into, um, flow and like, if you actually got the task that you set out to do done, it has been amazing. We got, I started like using it and then it kind of spread into the company and now half, half of our team is using it too.
0: Wow. I have to check that out. I haven't heard of that yet. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. I think you'll need a beta invite so I can get
0: it to you. Okay. How about two others?
1: Uh, The other one is not actually an app, again, is a device called Remarkable 2, so it's an e-ink tablet, and, you know, people, this is the, like, best device that I've seen that really gets you the writing, the feeling of writing really well, Um, and I use that with some templates I got off, you know, Etsy to kind of do the bullet journal type of thing, and it's it's gotten me so well organized and like on top of my note-taking thought organizing game. And then the last one I think is Slack, I guess. I I want to live without it, but I can't.
0: Well, Mo, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story, which is incredibly inspirational. Um, The great work you've done in building a company that's been successful and has helped so many people with their productivity. And it's been a company that I think other entrepreneurs would absolutely admire in terms of how you built it and obviously the great work you're doing as an investor now well that's our show I hope you found it useful and entertaining if you did please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes also please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry it all really helps us out Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFiz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.